So at the ripe old age of 35, I was asked uh, by some friends to help start a master's basketball league. Man, did I feel old. We made a drafting strategy to ensure that we would have parity and continue to have parity between the teams, and it worked well for several years. But over time, new leadership and the team started to get a little imbalanced as younger players found ways that they could stay and play together. My team was aging and some teams were not. Then there was this glorious year when my old team fluked our way into the championship game against the young team, which had won all their games, and we won. Didn't matter that most of their star players couldn't make the game, but we won. Now, that was a deceptively tantalizing win because several years later, I was still doggedly slugging it out, determined to be part of one more winning season. In the middle of a tense game, the outcome of which would alter the course of history, I was guarding my man in the paint, and a guy from the other team cut across, beat, beat his, the man on my team that was defending him, cut across the key, and I moved over to play help defense and cut off the pass that was coming. And just as I moved over, the guy who had lost his man on my team and now was trying to make up for lost time, 50 pounds heavier than me, trying to claim exactly the same little piece of real estate that I was just in. He tried to stop, but he stumbled, and several hundred pounds of dead weight slammed against the side of my knee, and there was a crack and a torn MCL. Some of you are cringing because you have experienced it. When I limped into the door of my house that night, my ever-sympathetic wife shook her head and asked matter-of-factly, what happened this time? I told her, and she continued in her empathetic tone and said, Mel, this was God's gift to you. It's been evident for a long time you're not having fun anymore. This is God just saying, if you can't make the call to retire on your own, let me help you. And she may even have said, I'm not sure, but I, she may even have said, I've been praying for this. <laughs> Several years ago, LaDonna was managing a healthcare project, helping uh, uh, create a, a better elder care program for an entire healthcare region. And, uh, and to get more knowledgeable about the whole field of elder care, she read a book, uh, a powerful book called Being Mortal. And one evening she said to me, this is so fascinating can I read you a chapter? And she said, sure. It's all about the physiology of the human body. And, and she started reading and all about what happens to the human body beginning at about age 26 and how we start beginning to die. After a few pages, I said, stop. <laughs> Enough already, please. <laughs> you see, we all have ways in which we bump against and sometimes try to ignore and defy the limits that we think are being imposed on us, right? It's not just our bodies. It's, it's everything in our environment. What's your limits story? We all have them. It's true that we're not as limited as we often think we are, but the script we live by today is the ditch on the other side of the road. There are no limits to what you can be and do. Be whatever you want to be. 
I don't want to burst your bubble. Well, yeah, I do, actually. That script is a brutal, brutal script. It's not just because we're fallen human beings. It's because we are human. And in case you hadn't figured it out yet, humans are finite. Do you know what finite means? Well, I, I went to the Oxford English Dictionary to get the official definition. Finite means having limits or bounds. Can't get more official than that. Limits are part of life. Oh yeah, often more than there needs to be. But the more we try to push back against the idea of limits, the more our environments, our, our home, our work, our school, our marriage, will discover ways to, to try to impose or help us to see our limits. So where do you find yourself bumping up against limits right now? Who you think you are or could be is not just who life is letting you be. In some way, life is saying no. You're saying that people are limiting you. Your environment is stifling you. But is that really what it is? Is that all it is? This morning, we're going to begin a teaching a series on the letter in the New Testament called the book of Philippians. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, your Bible app. Um, lighting in this room, is you can't read from your Bible anyway. So get download, download, your, download a Bible app and, and uh, read, read, read it from that. Do you know where Paul is? as he writes this letter to people in the church in the city of Philippi, he's in prison. Probably a Roman prison. Now, this is the, not the first time he's been in prison. As a matter of fact, he was in prison once in uh, Philippi and had this miraculous uh, jailbreak, but, but he knows this time he probably won't get out. You want to talk limits? Prison is limits. Actually, prison is what we often call it when we feel like life is life is limiting us, right? Right? It's confining us. This is a prison. But as we read this book, you don't get the sense at all that Paul is focusing on his limits, the unfair, unjust limits that have been imposed on him. And when he prays, and when he invites them to pray, never once does he say, please pray that I'll be released from this prison, from these limits. Not once. From the confines, from the limits of a Roman prison, writes, Paul writes this, this, well, in my Bible, it's three and a half pages, three, a three and a half page book that has more of what someone has called coffee cup verses, more one-liners that, that we want to read first thing in the morning to inspire us and to give us a focus that, than any other four-page section in the Bible that I know of. Well, maybe Sermon on the Mount, but uh, mostly, Okay. Statements like, well, listen, listen to some of these statements, and remember, he's writing these from a prison. Chapter 1, verse 6, we're going to look at it a little bit. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Even himself in prison, he's still thinking that, no, there's, there's still a work that God's trying to do in me. Chapter 1, verse 21, verse, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 3, not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold in prison. I'm still pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Chapter 4 is just full of them. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even in the confines of a prison that's confining his body, it can't confine his heart and his mind. Chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. Verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Verse 19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like he's focusing on his limits? Sounds to me like it's all about unlimited. In the introduction to this book, the first 11 verses of chapter 1, we have a summary of the basic message of the entire book, and it's this. No limit you encounter has to define you or confine you when you let it point you to your limitlessness in Jesus. Let's read verses 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always, in, my, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. In this introduction to limitless living, Paul surfaces three ways we can actually leverage the limits we feel or we encounter to, to, to lean into and live into God's limitlessness for us so that the limits we think confine us do not define us, but they actually refine us to the praise and glory of God. It all centers around one core truth that is, that's the foundation for unlimited life. And that core truth leads to us to a perspective on ourselves that's, that's the beginning of unlimited thinking. A core truth, well, it, it's, it's not just a truth in a principle or a theory kind of sense. It's an act in history by God to break the limiting factor underlying all of the limits that we focus on. What is, what is the big truth that is on Paul's heart in this first chapter? Actually, in all of Paul's writings, there's a word he used six, six times in this chapter to describe that core truth. It's what he calls gospel. For some reason, my clicker is not working here. Sorry. There we go. Gospel. Gospel. Which means good news. The good news is not principles for living. It's not guidance to listen to. 
The good news is that in Jesus, God did, not, did, did more than say something. He did something. He did something about the big reason that limits loom so large in our thinking. What's the gospel? Jesus, well, 1 Corinthians 15, very simple. Jesus died for my sins to bridge the gap and rose again to be my leader, to lead me into a life of fullness, a life that transcends limits. He died to deal with, with sin. And one aspect, and, and the, the most common metaphor to describe sin in the, in the New Testament is missing the mark, falling short of the standard of who in my heart I know I was created to be. In Romans chapter 3, it says, falling short of the glory of God. The glorious position I was created to have in God. Sin is even bigger than missing the mark. It, it's replacing the God who is, the, the God who created me to live in Him, under Him, in fullness in Him with idols, lesser gods. Guilt is not a feeling. True guilt is a fact. True guilt is that gap between who I am and who I was created to be. It's not about whether I feel guilty. The truth is that I am guilty before God. I was talking with somebody recently who, who was talking to me, uh, not from around here, but they were talking to me about something they were participating in, and, and he said to me, well, I don't feel guilty about it. I started praying for this guy. A couple weeks later, he said, you know what? The issue isn't what I feel. I, I realize that I'm falling short of who God called me to be. That's guilt. You know what the truth of the gospel is? Guilt is replaced by gospel. Good news. In Jesus' death, that gap is bridged. And do you know what happens when we don't allow this truth to be the reality we live in? When we still live in the gap? We, we do crazy things to try to defy any limits. Wild things, unhealthy things, things that end up imprisoning us even more. Like with torn MCLs. Well, no. We also work our way, we work way too hard to try to prove that that gap is not as big as we feel it is, or to try to hide the ways in which we actually are living that gap, or we overreact when someone tries to impose limits on us, or sometimes we become people pleasers. You know what people pleasing is? It's, it's being susceptible to false guilt. We, we know there's this gap in guilt. So we are so susceptible to the expectations, the unrealistic expectations of others, which are not higher than God's expectations. They're just way off in left field or right field, whatever it is. Right? Those are expectations that are imposed on us by people who are trying to compensate for or deny their own guilt. Jesus came to die to be my substitute in paying the penalty for walking away from God, but it's actually even better than that. It's not just that he was our substitute. Although Paul doesn't use the word gospel in verse 1, Paul actually alludes to the gospel truth in this very first 
book, uh, verse of this book. Now remember, what is this book? It's a letter, right? And in a letter, the first thing you do is you, you address the people that, that you're writing to. And, and, and if it's a circular letter and it's, it's not just one person, you, you, you choose a word for that group that makes them feel good about you writing them. So, dear friends, right? Or dear colleagues. Or dear family. You know the one I hate? Dear partners. Uh-oh, uh-oh, they're wanting something from me. <laughs> right? What does he call them? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people, to all God's saints is the word, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Who are God's saints? Saints are not super Christians. Saints are not extra special people. Saints are everyone who is what? In Christ Jesus. Everyone who has come into the realm of Jesus' love and and under the realm of his leadership, the kingdom of God, by embracing the truth of the gospel, is a saint. Saint simply means to be set apart, set apart as someone special, for someone special, for something special. Jesus, in his death, gave me this set-apartness status that is who I am. We talked about two weeks ago, a position of righteousness, a right standing with God that Deals with the gap, not just someday, but now. Do you get the irony in Paul's greeting here? Think about it. Who is Paul? Paul was super dude. He was an apostle. Paul was the guy Jesus handpicked to lead his whole movement, the whole Christian church, out of the cradle of Judaism in which it was born. And, be, and Paul was the human person to take this whole thing global. If Paul was following the customs of the day in which official letters started by the letter writer pumping his own tires, he, he would have started by saying, Paul, called by Jesus as his lead apostle, Paul, head saint to all God's servants in Philippi. That's what he has said. Paul flips it. Paul and Timothy, servants to all God's saints in Philippi. Right from the get-go, Paul very clearly puts himself in the background to help them, to help us see and embrace our gospel identity. That's the first thing that we need to do to understand our limitlessness. The gospel, what Jesus did for us, actually makes it irrelevant how I feel about myself. And that's part of the struggle with things that limit us, right? We, we see those limits as confirming our self-identities of limitlessness. If I could only get rid of those limits, I could feel better about myself. No, we wouldn't. Well, we might for a very short time, but that becomes an, an addiction, right? We've got to have more of that. Paul invites us to, to deal with that monster, that vicious cycle of needing more affirmation by embracing a gospel identity, identity that is given to us by God through Jesus by embracing the good news. I am a saint, not because I'm someone special, not because I'm any better than anyone else, anyone else but because I am in Jesus. He is my identity. The moment you make the choice to give your heart to Jesus and claim your identity in Him, something dramatic happens to the life that is at the core of who you are. And there's, these, there's all of these word pictures in the New Testament to describe that. Once you were dead, 
Now you're alive. Once you were far from God, but now you're brought near. Once you were a stranger, but now you are a son or a daughter, an heir together with Jesus. Once you were an alien, but now you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Once you were lost, but now you are found. I was wrestling this week whether I'd have the courage to say what I really felt we needed to hear from this verse to help us understand how powerful, how real life this truth is. What I wanted to say is that this truth about our gospel identity, that we are saints set apart by Jesus into a status that makes all of the limits we have and we feel irrelevant, that this truth actually deals with a curse that many of us have grown up with, and even if we haven't grown up with it, in our world we live with. You know what curse that is? It's the I am special curse. A lot of us grew up with a curse of being told we're special. I wasn't sure I'd have the courage to say that because I know it violates a fundamental, politically correct way of thinking. But I got the courage to say it in spite of, or maybe as a result of one of those limits experience that I bumped up against this week and, and it frustrated me a little bit. I was supposed to join our staff at the annual Global Leadership Summit, re, Global Leadership Summit rebroadcast in, in Sherwood Park this week, and we'd been planning it for six months, and it was supposed to be a staff team-building time and time to get away and recharge, and uh, I was looking forward to it, but life happened, and I was not able to go. There were too many things that I knew I had to get done this week, and, and I, I, I couldn't help it. I was feeling that can't do everything, can't be everything limits big time. My wife went and, and she brought home a book written by one of the speakers. And Thursday evening, after she got home, um, I uh, picked up that book and looked at it and I uh, started reading it. It's called Beginner's Pluck. It's written by a woman, Liz Forkin Bohannon. Don't say that name. Liz Forkin Bohannon, who grew up under the I am special curse. And like all of us, she was brutally confronted with reality. But unlike many of us, she faced that reality. She overcame it, and she uses her life story to illustrate a better way forward. Listen to them, some of the chapter titles in this book. The first chapter directly confronts that I am special curse. It's called Own Your Average. The majority of us are average, right? Chapter two, stop trying to find your passion. <laughs> Another thing she dares to say that I've always wanted to say. I'm loving it. Gets better. Chapter three, dream small. <laughs> Several chapters later, using Fitbit language, she says, get your steps in. But she was trying to get across is stop trying to find the exact right first step, the exact right step to get into what you really know you need, you, that, that interests you, something you're good at or want to be good at. Just start with something, something that pays the bills. Chapter 9, get hooked on making and keeping promises. Chapter 10, be good with good enough. Liz has pivoted through life to the point that she heads up one of the most powerful social impact movements on the globe today, but the point is not where she ended up. The point is where she was brought down to to start and continues to try to start in every day. Start 
by facing and staring down the I am special curse. Listen to some of what she says about owning your average. Yes, she says we have a sacred part to play, but what the world doesn't need is more people who are desperately trying to convince themselves and others that they are above average, special Cinderella's because they think it's what will earn them the spotlight and the spotlight itself will give them a sense of worthiness and purpose. Now the world also doesn't need, she says, more people who shrink into the chorus line because they erroneously believe they're inherently below average and are terrified of what others might think of them should they spread their wings and try to fly. Because the truth is, by definition, most of us are pretty average. She shows why thinking we're we're special is such a curse, um, pointing to a, a study done by a psychologist named Claudia Miller. Miller and her social science type buddies gave a test to several hundred grade five students. They gave them all a set of basic problems to solve and most of the children did pretty well. And they praised all of the children. But they praised two groups of children differently. The group one, they praised these kids for how smart they were. Wow, that's a great score. You are really smart and gifted You are special. Group two, they they praise them as well for for progress, for for growth, for for their work ethic. Wow, good score. You must have worked really hard. You must have stuck with it and persevered when you could easily have been frustrated and given up. Way to go. You'll You'll probably do even better next time. You know what happened next time? Group one, the I am special group. They actually shied away from taking on a bigger challenge in the future, the risk of accepting an assignment where they might struggle and fail, which would prove their specialness was so great they actually chose a weaker, a a lower level assignment. Group two, they wanted more challenging assignments. Failure wasn't nearly as scary to them. And not only did the kids in group one want easier assignments, When they chose those easier assignments, the performance on those easier assignments was less than on their first assignment. The kids in group two who chose the more difficult assignment, their scores were better than their first assignment. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to to raise our kids or be raised? By being told you're a nobody? You're nothing special? No, no. Here is what a gospel identity tells us. Here's what we are hoping to partner with you as parents in our children's ministries. I am special to Jesus. It's not about who you are inherently. It's about who you are to Jesus and in Jesus. Jesus, through his action for us, which is the good news, Jesus has set us apart, has made us special to him and in him. I love what Bohannon says about the significance of that. She, she recognizes that most of us will be afraid to own our average, that, that it will feed and foster our securities, our insecurities. Listen to what she says. It's always good to quote somebody else. Some, you, know, you know when a speaker quotes somebody else? When he doesn't want to be blamed for saying it, okay? So here's what she says, okay? This isn't me. This is what she says. Um... I'm going to ask you to trust me on this as we embark on a little experiment, she says. Every time you say or think you're struggling with insecurity, I I want you to replace that word insecurity with immature ego. 
Oh man, I, I got such an immature ego. Ouch. See why I wanted to blame her? Let's think of some of the things that we say that surface our insecurities. What do we say? Nobody listens to me. Nobody looks at me. Nobody sees me. Nobody likes me. Nobody lets me. Those are some of our key insecurity lines, aren't they? They make me feel like I'm a nobody when I'm supposed to feel special. Other people limiting what I could or should be, those are the reasons that I feel insecure. Oh, no, those are the things that are surfacing my immature ego factor. And then, just like me, she blames someone else for that line. She says this, if talking about your ego makes you feel defensive, allow me to redirect your aghast over to a Franciscan friar and spiritual teacher, Richard Rohr. Listen to what he says. Our immature egos, he says, are a social and mental construct that we develop to get us started on our journey in life. We seem to need to define ourselves as distinct from other people as a separate and unique self, it's probably necessary to get you started, he says, but it becomes problematic when you stop there, when you don't grow out of that and spend the rest of your life promoting and protecting your immature ego. He goes on to say that our immature egos, which surface and cause our insecurities, are inadequate to the big issues of life, like love, Death, suffering, and God. Which is a sophisticated way of simply saying they keep us from thinking it's all about me. But here's the power of what War says that brings us back to our text. He doesn't use the word gospel, but what he says was when you are connected to the whole, when you understand your reconnection to the God who created you in Jesus, when you understand your place in the story, that you are set apart as a saint, that you are special too in Jesus, when you are connected to the whole, you no longer need to protect or defend the part. You are now connected to something inexhaustible, something unlimited. And Bohannon says, when you're connected to the whole, you will realize that the story you are partaking in and co-authoring is so very big that you can no longer believe in a story so small that it has to have you at the very center. You'll become more enamored with the bigness of the beautiful story and what we can accomplish together than with your own individual performance in it. Folks, are you, are you living in your gospel identity or are you still living Limiting in that nobody likes me, nobody listens to me, nobody sees me. Is that where you're living? Someone has said that identity always precedes behavior. I, we say, I know I need to change. Well, the place to begin is to say, okay, what is the identity in here that I need to change, that I need to shed so I can live in my gospel identity? It's that I'm special identity. That's one we need to shed. I'm special, but nobody's seeing it, recognizing it. Nobody's letting me live in it. And, and when we have that identity, it leads to a fear of people seeing who I really am. 
I'm a loser. I'm a failure. And it leads to hiding. It leads to addiction. What is it about your identity that you need to name that is keeping you in those behaviors that you know you need to change? God hasn't given up on you, verse 6. He's going to finish what he started. And the place he starts is to give you a new identity. Have you ever claimed the identity Jesus wants you to have, wants to give you by simply seeing who he is for you, your ultimate level, your only true leader, the human representation of God himself before whom every single one of us will have to someday stand and, and from whom the only question will be, what, what did you do with me? What I died to give you? The naming the real gap, who you are not and never will be before God, and seeing that because of the gospel, you are still special to Jesus. And that is enough. Folks, isn't that more attractive than living under that I am special curse? The number one sign you're living in your gospel identity, well, well it's, it's Paul's posture as a servant. That word that he says, Paul, a servant of God, is not, is not the ordinary word for household help. It's, it's the word bondservant, slave. My identity as a saint is so secure, says Paul, that I am happily indentured permanently as a lackey to Jesus. It's not these chains that bind me in prison. I'm chained to Jesus, and these chains are a result of that, and so I'm okay with that. Now, this is a little tricky move. There's a tricky little move here on Paul's part, by the way, when he says, you guys are saints, I'm your servant. He's setting them up, actually, because as the book moves on, he's going to tell them, if you really live in your gospel identity, you're going to, and you're doing a pretty good job of it, he'll say, but you're going to actually, well, verse 3 of chapter 2, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Be their servant. We'll get to that in chapter 2, but the first thing he moves on to next after you embrace your gospel identity, and we'll go through these next ones really quickly. Um, he has two prayers. First one's a prayer of thanksgiving, and he's affirming for them how it's so obvious they're embracing their gospel identity by the way they have always and are continuing to, to own their gospel partnership. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They're not being consumers of the gospel for themselves. This is what I like. This is what I need. For those who are secure in their gospel identity, it's all about finding ways to partner together to help others embrace a gospel identity. This fall, we're challenging ourselves to unite together in, in, in amping up our game together a bit in this area. We're, we're asking you to challenge yourself and just form little um, partnerships and saying, hey, can we challenge each other? We're calling it our I3 challenge. Actually, we should really make it four. Uh, it's really an I4 challenge. Um, we said it begins with inviting, but it actually begins earlier than that. It begins with influence. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, used the pictures of salt and light, preserving influence. Do you know what my dream is? My dream is that every community league in southwest Edmonton, every area of our city, every community around uh, Southwest Edmonton, in which there's an Ellerslie family, Beaumont, Leduc, has representatives of Jesus, servants of Jesus from Ellerslie on the community league executive, on the school parent associations, 
Ellerslie people are organizing block parties. Ellerslie people are in seniors' residence uh, executives. And they're coaching community kids' sports programs. Why? Because if we're truly living in a gospel identity, we will want to be servants in influencing our communities for Jesus. And we will live in such a way that people say, wow, we need more of that kind of people. It's a place to begin. Influence. And then out of the influence you're developing and out of the circles you're creating and being part of, doing some inviting. I've been so encouraged by those of you who have come to me and asked me to pray for you as you figure out who to invite or how to invite a particular friend to Ellerslie, to, to Alpha at Ellerslie. Beginning in January, we, we'd like to have more people in the Alpha course, and that means people who are spiritually searching, not people who have already claimed a gospel identity. More, than, more people than ever in, in our courses. We're trying to find different venues even to host the Alpha course. Right now, we have one on a Sunday morning going on right now in the other room there. We got one in a senior's residence downtown led by one of our Ellerslie couples. And, and we'd, like, we'd like more venues if you have any ideas, talk to us, but start by in a small group or even creating a small group and take a three-week study called, David, what's it called? Life Shared. Life Shared, Life shared a three-week study to do together and out of that to form some, some uh, just ideas as to who you can invite to Alpha or to Ellerslie and then include people in circles. Gospel people don't just invite people, they look for people around them to include in a circle. I had someone this week out of the blue called the church office and they were lonely and, and asked if our church had a circle they could fit into and they defined a fairly specific circle that they wanted. I said, you know, I don't know, but I, I can find out. And then I said, but, but let me just prepare you because I, I had, this person had talked in a way that, that they were a longtime church person that knew how to figure out how to get in. And I said, well, let me just prepare you. If you came here and thought you'd like to be able to fit in here, and we don't have a, that very specific circle, how would you feel if we just said, you know, go for it. We'll help you create that circle. Starting circles of inclusion is not the job of our church staff. What we're all about is helping you create that circle. We need partners, not consumers. I promise you that you can walk in here every single Sunday and you won't have to look too far to see someone you don't know. Just go up to them, reach out a hand and say, Hi. I don't know if we've met. I did that this morning to two people, and both of them said, uh, yeah, we've met about four times. <laughs> One said, yeah, well, it was about two years ago. Uh, try it. See where it goes. Don't, don't talk. Listen. Listen until you can find some way to maybe serve them or help them take a next step. Those are key ways we can all own our gospel partnership, but it's, it's the next one that Paul is referring to when he talks about their gospel partnership when, when he says... When, when he talks about their gospel partnership, he's talking about a financial investment. Financial investment. The, the word itself that he uses to, to talk about partnership is, is referring to finances. But the, re, the other reason I know that is because he has used this Philippian church, the church, one of the churches in the region called Macedonia, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 29, in chapter 8 and 9, he's used this church, a, a poor church, as an example of those who sacrificed their money, who actually begged to be able to give to Paul's ministry financially. One way to measure the extent to which we're embracing and living in and living out a gospel identity is, is the extent that we're willing to make to invest financially in God's kingdom work, which begins right here as our first priority. Not 
well, I can't give because I'm already maxed out. That's just a sign we haven't embraced the gospel identity. You're getting your identity by what you can experience or what you have. What we spend our money on reveals our priorities, reveals what we want our identity to be, to, to be based on. All I can say on this one is if you want to challenge your own limited thinking, test God's goodness. Start by limiting your spending so that you can make a regular, sacrificial, joyful, financial commitment to demonstrate that you're all in as a gospel partner. Would you consider trying to figure out how you can do that? A final prayer. Embrace a gospel identity. Own your gospel partnership. And starting at verse 6, grow in gospel character. Being confident of this, he says, beginning in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you, all, all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, and God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus. What is the work that God began in us? Verse 1, you are a saint, start Moving towards that, living up to being a holy person in Jesus. It's gospel character. That's the work he's begun. That means that in every experience God allows you to have, whether we think it's a good experience or a bad experience, you know one thing for sure that God is doing. And that's the only thing you worry about. There might be other things he's doing, but you worry about the first one. What he's doing is he's giving you an opportunity to grow to become more like Jesus. I love the way um, a, a long time older pastor puts it in a devotional book. He says, God will either work in us or he will have to work on us, but he will finish the job. If we don't allow God to work in us, we leave him no choice but to work on us until we're willing to say, okay, I get it, I get it. I will allow you to work in me in that way too. It's a lot less painful, a lot more productive to allow God to work in us and not force him to work on us. And when we understand that, there's some questions we're going to ask ourselves, and Paul alludes to, he doesn't frame them in the terms of questions, but in, in starting at verse, uh, verse 9, in his prayer, we get three questions from that prayer that we can ask ourselves to help us grow in gospel character. Verse 9, am I growing in love? What is the most loving thing to do? This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. How do I know what the most loving thing to do is? Well, one place to begin is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just read it. There's about nine phrases, nine questions you can get out of it. Love is patient. Okay, what's the most patient thing to do? That's the most loving thing to do. Love is kind. What's the kindest thing I can do here? Love is not envious, less boastful. What, what's, what's the least prideful thing I can do? Love isn't rude. Whoa. Got some growth opportunities? I know I do past week, LaDonna and I were cleaning up the yard, and I didn't want to do it, but I knew we needed to do it, and I had got myself psyched up to do it, because we'd be doing it together, and it would save time, and we could have fun together doing it, and a situation arose in which she felt she had to leave, needed to leave for a period of time, and she promised to be only two minutes. LaDonna doesn't have a good time ticker in her head, and... Uh, it became a bigger deal to me than it really was. Was I right to be disappointed? Maybe, slightly, but not to the extent I was. I was not using my limitation as a signal to dwell on, to remind myself of the real love that I live in and to empower me to be loving. And I said something that sort of ruined the whole day. 
My limits were defining me. And I just read this passage about growing in love. Growth and discernment that you may be more and more discerning. And then verse 10, growth in, in motivation, being motivated out of selflessness. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. You know what that word pure is? That word pure literally means unmixed. We all, whether we admit it or not, have this whole mixture of motives. Well, I did it because I wanted to help. No, no, you did it because you wanted to look good. You wanted somebody to affirm you. Because if we get angry, if we get frustrated when something doesn't happen because of what we did, we did it because of a immature ego. Grow in love, in knowledge, and discernment so that we can do the selfless thing and not the mixed motives thing. So, as the group comes up to lead us in a final song, just, just a couple of questions. Number one, have you thought of some ways, has God pointed out some ways to you in which you're allowing your limits to define you and control you? In which you're allowing them to limit you in ways that they don't need to? Number two, in what ways might my limits be God's way of inviting me to grow? You're not doing it on your own. Let me help you. Let me remind you of your gospel identity, which makes you into a gospel partner and, and, and invites you to grow into the character that you really are in Jesus. Will you give yourself to living in that kind of a hope? Let's stand together.